answering the difficult and critical questions youth may face that relate to Mormon culture and teachings. This is the Rise Up Podcast, produced by Fair Mormon. What does it mean to be transgender and to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? A lot can be read about transgenderism in the media, but there isn't much being said about how this issue fits within the framework of the LDS Church. In this episode, we're introduced to a member of the church and his wife who speak honestly and faithfully about their firsthand experience with this issue. In this episode, we're going to be speaking with Kyle and Amy Merkley. Kyle is the oldest of five children. He grew up in an amazing family, and he's grateful for the strength his family gives him. Kyle is currently attending graduate school at Brigham Young University, studying classical languages and literature. He loves literature and loves sharing this love of literature with others. Music has always been a huge part of his life, and he plays the trumpet, piano, and organ. Kyle has been married for almost five years to Amy, who is one of the most amazing women in the world. Uh, She helps him to be a better person every day. Kyle loves reading, watching chick flicks, shopping with his wife, and all things nerdy. Kyle is here with his wife, Amy, to talk about their very unique circumstances. For the sake of our conversation today, those unique circumstances will likely focus on the topic of Kyle identifying as being transgender or experiencing gender dysphoria. Kyle has contributed to a new project of the group North Star LDS. This project is called Journeys of Faith. And the Journeys of Faith project is a growing repository of personal essays by Latter-day Saint individuals and families wrestling with issues relating to gender identity, and are striving to find congruence and peace within the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll get into that a little bit more uh, later, but first, let's welcome both Kyle and Amy. Thank you both for coming in. It's great to be here. Thank you. Um, So there's there's really a lot to learn and absorb with this topic, uh, being transgender or experiencing gender dysphoria, but let's let's first set some foundational items, some, some... Getting to in, in the process of getting to know you, we, we probably ought to come to know a little bit more about uh, some of the words that people use, why they use them in, in talking about this issue. We want to use the words that are most welcome in, in this discussion. So what does it mean to start out to, to be transgender and what does it mean to experience gender dysphoria in perhaps more of a textbook sense? Okay. Transgender in general is kind of an umbrella term that just covers anyone who's personal gender identity falls outside of the normal binary we think of. Meaning, I feel like a boy, I look like a boy, Boy. I have genetic, okay. And uh, gender dysphoria is actually the technical diagnosis for the feelings of discomfort and incongruence with your body. Okay. Or with your, the gender that your, what, your external experience, appearance, sorry, the gender that your external appearance has. Okay. So dysphoria is the fact that I look like a, a, a man, I, I talk like a man, I am a man biologically, but I don't feel that way inside. Okay. And that causes these feelings of discomfort. Now you say that this is a very medical thing. This is not a, this kind of a social term that's given to it. This is like a medical, psychological type yeah, term? Yeah, so in the, in the DSM-5 for psychologists, the technical diagnosis is called gender dysphoria. Okay. Okay. Well... With uh, your, your, your essay, which is going to be kind of the foundation of, of what we're talking about here, your essay uh, as part of this Journeys of Faith project, it's entitled Jesus Wins, Finding Faith in Ambiguity. You express some concepts that, that may sound familiar to some teenagers in some respects, um, but, but maybe not in others. Maybe you can talk about your experience with mirrors to kind of introduce the subject of, of some of the emotions that you've felt in okay. your life. So I guess to start off, I would say that when you experience gender dysphoria, there are certain things that we often tend to call triggers, things that remind you of that dysphoria and bring it to the forefront. The dysphoria, the discomfort is always there, but certain actions or certain, just certain actions tend to uh, bring those feelings to the forefront instead of staying in the back. So for me, looking in mirrors has always been one of those actions that brings that discomfort strongly to the forefront because I look in the mirror and I see myself. I see my body, it's, it's male, and that's not how I feel inside, and it just reminds me constantly that this, my perception of myself doesn't match 
my physical appearance. Okay. And so every time I look in a mirror, it's just a sudden reminder that, oh, I'm dealing with this. And I can't can't hide from it. Kind of looks like a stranger? A or? Yeah, yeah. So, so when I look in a, the mirror, I the person I see in the mirror doesn't feel like me, or at least doesn't feel like how I feel I should be mm. internally. Mm. And it's really hard to explain, but looking in a mirror is a painful thing. And it's just something that you ha- I just have to recognize, that every time I'm, looking, I'm going to look in a mirror, I'm going to feel this pain. I'm going to feel the fact that I have this dysphoria. I have this discomfort with this, and it's just a constant reminder. Yeah. So with your specific life scenario, you, as we mentioned, you were born a genetic male. Um, when did you feel that that, that just didn't fit or that, that your mind's eye just didn't see things the way that your physical eyes did, I guess? That's a really hard question. It's really hard to identify when the feelings mm. really started. So I can't, can't give a hard answer. I know that they really came to the forefront very strongly probably when I was 9 or 10. Okay. Is when I, I really began to consciously realize on a regular basis that I felt deeply uncomfortable being male. Yeah. So how did your – I mean, you, you clearly had to go through some experiences where you were fighting this. And in your essay, you talk about different, different experiences and I want to encourage people to – to go and read that, but when this kind of started to come forward, when it kind of bubbled to the surface, I guess, if you will, how did your your parents respond to, to these kind of moments where you broke through that gender line? Okay. Um, it's a difficult question to answer because okay. as a child, particularly as a preteen, I was not very communicative with my parents. Okay. And I didn't really know how to explain my feelings. Like, how do you explain to someone that I feel like I shouldn't be a boy? Like, it just doesn't seem rational, rational or reasonable or, or like something that should happen to anyone. And I'd never heard the terms, you know, gender dysphoria or gender, gender identity disorder or transgenderism. I, so as a child, I thought I was the only person in the world who had these feelings. Wow, very isolated then. Very, very isolated. And since I felt completely alone, I didn't know how to explain the feelings. I tended to try and hide them as well as I could. And so when the feelings came out, and particularly, I think the most obvious way it came out is I found that it brought me a lot of relief to wear my mother's clothes. And just to imagine for a moment that I was a girl, that I wasn't a boy, that that things were how they felt I should be. Mm. And when my parents caught me doing that, I couldn't explain to them why it made me feel so good. And they, they didn't, did they get angry or were they just as confused as you were? Uh, they were upset and confused. I don't, they, I don't ever think, I mean, my mom felt a little betrayed just because I was getting into her stuff without <laughs> her permission and, you know, it's confusing. invasion and, of privacy. Yeah. So, so it was definitely, there was definitely a little bit of anger, but it was mainly confusion. Like, why, why do you feel this way? And mm. I couldn't explain why I felt that way. And so most often it was assumed it's, it must be a sexual thing. It must be a fetish or something. It's it's something that'll just pass. And so it ended up getting really buried because I felt a lot of guilt over these feelings. Sure. But you, you say in your article that there was absolutely nothing sexual about these feelings. This wasn't something that had an element of, of arousal to it. It was just, that's just how it was. Yeah. The problem was, I mean, particularly when these conversations first started, I hadn't hit puberty at all yet. I didn't know anything about sex. So when people asked me questions, I couldn't answer them in any way. And that lack of answer just made people wonder. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, be- being a teenager is typically defined in-, in some part with the experience of self-discovery and-, and the challenges that arise when your body goes through certain biological changes, a- as well as-, as kind of a social independence. But here you are with another layer to that, right? I mean, you're, you're saying that there's something this is very unknown to you. There's no, there's no educational understanding or anything like that. But it's also very uncharted in the Mormon experience, which deals a lot with gender roles and things like that, of course. And we can talk more about that later. But in, in your essay, you state that the atonement of Jesus Christ gave you hope. And particularly Moroni chapter 10, verse 32, which reads, Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And if you shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all your might, mind and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you. Then by his grace, ye may be perfected in Christ. So in all of this, 
you, you reflect on how the atonement helped give you strength, but in what way did you feel that the atonement needed to give you strength? Okay. Well, initially, particularly as a child, I mean, I already felt a lot of guilt and shame over these feelings, and I internalized all that guilt and shame and felt like because I had these feelings, these feelings must be evil. You were doing something wrong by having these feelings. Yeah, because, I mean, every time I tried to talk about them, it clearly made people uncomfortable. It made people unhappy. Any actions revolving around those feelings or any breaking of gendered barriers was clearly something that was wrong. And so the feelings must be wrong. And so I really internalized that to a point where for a long time I felt like I must be wrong. Right. I must be evil because I have these feelings. Even if I'm not doing anything about them, feeling this way is wrong. So I should try and get rid of that. And in a situation like that where you feel like no matter what you do, you're failing. You're always feeling wrong. There's nothing more powerful than the atonement. That idea that at some point something can make you right. Hmm. And so that scripture just reminded me constantly that no matter how I felt, no matter how, how evil, how much I hated myself, it didn't matter because God loved me and he provided a way for me to be happy. And so I think for a long time that hope in the atonement was based in maybe some false ideas of, of me being evil and needing that. And I really did feel for a long time that if I was righteous enough, God would just take away these feelings. And I spent a lot of time as a teenager just praying and begging God to take away these feelings so I could be normal, so I wouldn't have to be evil anymore. Yeah. But it's kind of, it's kind of uh, I don't want to call it a double-edged sword because that's not the right metaphor, but at the, on the one side, the church and the teachings were providing you kind of this pain and this discomfort, but yet at the same time, the, the, they were healing you at the same time. Is that fair? Is that how you're kind describing of. it? Well, I, I guess I would say that the central tenets of the gospel— which I think really is the atonement of Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ always brought great hope into my life. Always. And I always knew that was the most important part of the gospel. Mm -hmm. There were just these other, th other perceptions of how gender should be, of what gender was, that for a large part actually aren't based in gospel or scriptural teachings. They're cultural. I mean, there clearly is a distinction between genders in the gospel, but a lot of the things that made me specifically uncomfortable and feel evil aren't really defined. There's gotcha. no clear answers on whether or not this activity or this thought is right or wrong. Yeah. So those things made me uncomfortable. But I think the core, most important part of the gospel always brought me a great deal of hope. Excellent. And so at some point, music became a part of your life. And it was kind of a coping mechanism to a certain extent. And uh, we're, we're both trumpet players. Nice. Uh, so I, I can understand a little bit more of how that, that expression, that opportunity to develop a talent, a skill that doesn't revolve around gender, doesn't revolve around this main conflict can be of some piece. And what other ways did, did music help you through what you were experiencing? Okay. One of the things I've all, I'd always wanted and I always felt like was missing was having a clear sense of place in the world. Okay. Because when you don't feel like your gender matches your outward experience, your appearance, your, your life, your expectations— you constantly feel out of place. I felt out of place being around guys, and I felt out of place being around girls just because I didn't know who I was supposed to be or how I was supposed to act or who I really even was. And music always gave me a clear sense of purpose. It said, here's what you can do. Here is who you are. And in particular, I loved jazz because not only does it give you a sense of purpose, at the same time it says, improvise, do your own thing. Yeah. Express yourself in any way that you want, and that's okay. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that before, but yeah, okay. I like that. Well, uh, your life progresses, and uh, and even with all that's going on in your life, you decide to go to uh, BYU as opposed to some other university and where maybe perhaps being transgender is either more present, accepted, uh, maybe even encouraged to a certain extent. So why BYU? Well, I mean, when I chose BYU, I still had never even heard the word transgender. I still didn't even realize that there was anyone else in the world who felt the way I did. I was still very alone and very isolated. I mean, I'd found a lot of strength and comfort through music, and I knew that was something I loved because it brought me peace. And you were in the music program there, right? Yeah. I spent some time in the music program there. And my trumpet teacher had gone to BYU, and so I knew the professor at BYU. I knew a bunch of the people in the program. And it felt really right just to go there. I, I was something that was comfortable. I knew it. 
And since I did feel so alone, it was nice to know people. Yeah. Kind of have a place. So that 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 social association brought you more into BYU than any anything other particular uh, any other particular issue. I mean, yeah, in general. I mean, I liked the fact that it was a church school. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had a strong testimony of the gospel. I always have. Yeah. So that was that was a nice thing. But in general, it was it was social decisions and fe- feeling comfortable. Okay. Okay. Well, BYU, of course, is, is the case with a lot of people that they end up going on a mission at some point, and you're called to serve in the California Anaheim Mission. Is that's, that right? That's correct. So, uh, so opening that letter, dear Elder Kyle Merkley, um, how did that feel to to read that? Given your trials and circumstances to this point, did you see that as a a point of success, an achievement, or how, how did you view that opportunity? So I think for me, in a lot of ways, it was it was a success because partly just because it's something that going on a mission was always just something I was supposed to do, right? It's the expected thing. It's what I'm supposed to do, and I knew that serving people would be a fantastic opportunity. And getting to that point and knowing that, okay, even though I've had all these really hard things in my life, I've made plenty of mistakes, I've, I'm not a perfect person, and I still don't really feel that comfortable with myself, I'll at least have the opportunity to spread this message of the atonement, which really it's was giving you hope. A, a yeah. cornerstone in my life. It's what kept me going. And so I, I guess in, I want to give a, another quote from your essay where you state, while serving a mission was really hard in some ways, I had to deal with constant depression and living with all guys, which triggered my gender dysphoria. I found serving a mission also clearly defined a role for me. I didn't have to struggle with the question of who I was. I was told exactly who I was and how I was supposed to act every day. It was that sense of purpose which kept me going. Now, was that something you felt at the time or you can just recognize it looking back? Oh, I definitely felt that at the time. Okay. Yeah. Well, once again, purpose is something I'd always struggled with because I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how I was supposed to act. I felt wrong. And I wanted someone to define what I was supposed to do. And going on a mission, they hand you that white handbook of rules and they say, here is exactly what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And for me, that structure was something I probably really needed. It gave me a clear sense of purpose and I knew that I was doing good things. And it was really hard because I went on my mission and I watched the atonement of Jesus Christ change all these people's lives. I watched them come closer to Christ. I watched them have testimonies and I saw miracles and it was amazing. And I always had that feeling in my heart, well, why can't God just cure me? Why, 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 can't why can't I have, have miracle? those miracles? Yeah. Why do I still struggle with these feelings? And I didn't have an answer at the time. That would be tough. I can imagine. I mean, missions are tough already on their own with all the different challenges of rejection and all that. And here you are again adding, or not adding, but just experiencing another layer of, of different things. So, um, But it was on your mission that you actually first uh, learned the name for what you were experiencing, or at least a term that has been applied to those experiencing similar emotions, and that is transgender. That's correct. So you came across this by by teaching people that that said that they were transgender or So it was mainly street contacting. We would run into people and the first time we were just talking to people at a bus stop and we started talking to one woman and she was really uncomfortable talking about religion. It was really c- clear that she felt that God couldn't love her. And after talking for I don't know, maybe 45 seconds or so, I suddenly realized that this woman clearly had not been born a woman. Mm. And as soon as I realized that, it was like a thunderbolt being like, wow, I there must be other people who feel like this because someone would do this. And they clearly feel a lot of guilt about this because they don't think God loves them anymore because of the decisions they've made. And that was a really hard thing because I didn't know anything about it and I always wanted God to love me. And I looked at this woman and I really saw myself in many ways. I saw my experience and I didn't have any answers because I hadn't met any other people. I didn't really even know the term and the term got mentioned in the conversation. So suddenly I had a word for all this, but I didn't really know what that meant. Yeah. So here you are finally 19, 20, 21 years old. I don't know when you went, but uh, you're old enough now that you finally have a name or at least that there are other people kind of going through the same thing. And so I guess you you then decide to to study transgenderism, uh, hours, days, weeks. I don't know how, how was this like an all consuming kind of thing, or just you kind of read what you could when you could. It was pretty all consuming. Yeah, I mean, I I love research. That's why I love academia. I like the classics. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time reading everything I could 
from medical papers to psychological studies to books. So yeah. So I guess when you were going through all this, um, I would assume at some point studying the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints and this issue and how they are, you know, how they may go together. Uh, you you kind of discover there's not a whole lot out there. Yeah. Um, it, it's still kind of yet to be revealed, I think, in some respects. You're not finding a whole lot of information from the church on this issue. You're finding a whole lot of stuff. Well, maybe not a whole lot of stuff, but stuff from the medical world. A whole lot of stuff. Oh, there's, there's, there's okay. plenty, plenty, there's of, plenty stuff. of stuff. Right. Um, so, but this kind of gives you this cognitive dissonance, and at some point you describe yourself as snapping under this, this pressure, or maybe it would just be a, this vacuum of space where questions remain unanswered to a certain extent. Is that the right way to describe it? or well, I, think, I think the way I would describe it is, so here I am, I'm studying, I'm trying to figure out what it means to be transgender in the first place. And then the next level is what does it mean to be transgender and to be LDS, to yeah. believe in the church, to be try and be active and follow the teachings of the prophets. What does all this mean? And I start turning to teachings and I don't find really anything. There's there's nothing. I've read hundreds of pages, and every story I can find is really negative. People leaving the church, people having bad experiences, people losing their testimonies. And then I run into stories of people who, well, comments from Mormons who don't understand and don't feel like people with these feelings should even be in the church. And when I start running into both of those things, and I, I, I really wondered for a long time, is it even possible to have these feelings and to be LDS? Is, is it something that can be done or is it completely impossible to do? And I really am evil because I have these feelings. Right. All those teenage emotions kind of came back on, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. They're still there. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. But in, in this particular case, it seemed particularly particularly potent. And uh, so if you, you have, I guess, these questions, you're going through this really difficult time. And in all this, there were some coping mechanisms that you kind of installed, some, some self-medication that, that served as a sort of pressure release for all that you were feeling during this really dark period. So you, you go into it in your, in your essay a little bit, but maybe you could touch on a few of those things that maybe okay. yeah. happened. Yeah. All right. So I'm already feeling like it's completely impossible, that I can't do this in any way, that being Mormon and transgender is not something that can be done and that I must be evil. And so I start trying to figure out what can I do and I don't know what to do, and I wonder if maybe I should just transition and leave the church, but I feel so evil and guilty about myself that I can't even talk to my family or friends or anyone I know because I feel like I'll just be completely rejected. And a big part of that's just me hating myself so much, having so much shame and so much anger, even at God for making me deal with this and giving me this trial that I just couldn't handle or felt like I couldn't handle. And that made it really hard because we were always taught that God's not going to give us a trial that we can't deal sure. with, that, that we'll be okay, just trust in the atonement. And so I really wondered for a while and started to doubt the church and, and doubted my own testimony. And in this horrible place, I mean, I was, I was suicidal. I started skipping school. There was one semester where I, I missed far, far too many classes <laughs> at BYU and just in a horrible place, and the only ways I had to cope was distancing myself from everything, not worrying about any of my emotions, my feelings, just separating myself from anyone who I'd interact with or in any way, and trying to remove myself from any triggers basically by removing myself from the world emotionally and actually physically. I mean, I stopped going to classes. And when that wasn't enough, as a teenager, I'd always, well, not always, but I, I definitely got into the problem of looking at pornography as a teenager. I think it's something a lot of people can relate to. It's a pretty serious problem. And for me, pornography was always a way to, once again, separate myself from my own experience and immerse myself in, in a completely new reality in which I could pretend or imagine I was anyone I wanted to be. And so in pornography, I would just imagine that I was a woman and it made me comfortable and provide provided some degree of sexual release that made me feel better. And it was the only way I knew to deal with it at the time. And it was yeah. super unhealthy. And it really hurt my self-esteem anymore because I knew it was wrong. I felt it was wrong. I knew this was not respectful of my body or all these other people's bodies. And 
bodies are temples. And so every time I would just feel more guilty and hate myself more. So what did I do? I watched more pornography. Yeah. I separated myself more from the world. Well, that, that alternate reality is very tempting, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, it becomes very, very difficult. So but I guess this is kind of the point in your life where, where Amy comes into the picture, right? It's kind of after the mission in college. And uh, Amy comes along. So I've heard some very dear things about you from from some people. I won't go, you know, into who they are, but uh, <laughs> I assume they're all true. But how, how did you uh, how did you guys meet? We actually met in a Latin class at BYU. Excellent. Um, we Kyle actually sat behind me, and um, our professor sometimes she would forget the text that we were translating that semester. And being a little bit of a goody two-shoes, I would offer my textbook. And then <laughs> Kyle would just, like, tap me on the shoulder and be like, hey, you can look over mine if you want. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, and then we had several other classes together, um, studying Latin and ancient history. Um, and we would always sit next to each other, and we were good friends. Yeah, very cool. So, uh I guess Kyle also had some uh, some incredibly tender words to describe what you meant to him, and he put it in the essay. And I, I kind of want to read those real quick to give a sense of uh, how this all came together. He said, uh, she asked me out when I didn't have the self-confidence to ask anyone out. She liked me when I couldn't find the strength to like myself. And eventually she loved me when all I felt inside was self-loathing. When we started dating, she brought happiness back into my life. Every time I was around her, I felt so right, a rightness I'd been searching for my whole life. She made the pain of gender dysphoria recede into the background. She brought light and color back into a world which was colorless and bleak. She gave me hope. She loves life so much and finds joy in so many little things. Every time I was with her, I found little joyful reasons to love life as well. As we dated, she began the process of healing my broken spirit. Now, I'm sure you've read this essay and you've read those words. So what, is, what did it mean to you to, to read that? Well, it means a lot to me. I, I love Kyle, and I love that I could be so helpful and, and help heal him that way. Did you know? I mean, when, when did you find out about the, the, what kind of impact you had? Um, well, as we were dating, I could definitely see him sort of perk up a little bit whenever we were, um, together and that was really endearing to me. I liked, um, I liked being able to do that. Uh, so I, I kind of, while we were dating, I, I had a, a little bit of a glimpse of how I helped him in some way, but I really didn't have a perception of to what degree I was able to do that. So Okay. Now, I guess at one point, um, there was a letter written. You guys had been dating for some time. It was getting serious. This is not exactly something that you tend to want to hide from the person you're, you're going to be emotionally and eternally involved with. Um, so, Kyle, I believe you wrote a letter to Amy explaining what was going on. If, if you feel comfortable, maybe tell us a little bit of what was in that letter or or why you felt that the time was right to, to put into that letter what you did. Okay. Well, it really came down to the fact that I was starting to feel strongly that I should probably marry Amy. And that was a big thing because for a long time I wondered, should someone like me even get married? I don't know who I am. I still don't know what my eternal gender is or what really my eternal identity is. I, I don't know anything about myself. But I knew that, well, bef right before Amy asked me out, we'd known each other for a while, and I'd gotten into a slightly better situation. I still wasn't great, but I was praying to Heavenly Father to just throw me a lifeline, some way of, of helping me, because I knew that I would just fall back into these horrible self-destructive patterns, and I didn't want to feel evil. I didn't want to make a choice that I felt was, at the time, wrong. And that's when Amy really asked me out, and the fact that We'd gotten serious, and I felt like meeting, having Amy ask me out was an answer to prayer really helped me decide that maybe I should spend the rest of my life with her. And I felt pretty good when I prayed about it. But I knew that it wouldn't be fair to Amy to put her in a situation where she didn't understand me. 
Or where you'd be dependent on her. Yeah. And so I really wanted to explain to her some of the things I'd gone through. And so I wrote a letter that explained some of my my past faults and my sins and my struggles with pornography. And in the middle of the letter, I talked briefly about having these. At the time, I used the word transsexual. It was more popular back then. We don't use it as much now. But these transgender feelings. And I felt like it would be completely unfair to her not to know that I dealt with this. And at the time, I still felt like they were evil feelings. And so I wanted to let her know that I dealt with this, but I would do my best to keep it under control and that she should just know that I this was a really hard thing. Yeah. And to 99.9% of the women, it probably would have sent them packing, right? You would think <laughs> that that would be a very scary letter to read. But Amy, how did you, how did you respond? Well, it was definitely a difficult letter to read. Um, <laughs> Understatement of the year. I really, I didn't know what to do. So I just went to the Provo Temple and I just started to walk around the grounds. And um, I really got this sense that um, I was kind of at a crossroads in my life and that the Lord had presented me with a choice that I could... Um, I could choose to be with Kyle, and that might at times be a, a difficult path to go down, but that um, if I did choose that, I, I felt very strongly that I would be I would be blessed and given joy uh, that was commensurate to whatever troubles that I would experience along the way. And I love Kyle, and I didn't want to... I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to not be with Kyle. Um, so I decided to go through with it. I I also I was through this time. I was reminded slightly of Achilles, the the ancient Greek hero uh, that we had talked about so much together in all of our ancient studies classes. He was also given a choice like that, a, a difficult choice. On the one hand, he could uh, choose to live a, a peaceful, easy life, a long life, but in the end, he would be forgotten and no one would remember him after he had gone. Or he could go to war and live a short, violent, but glorious life that would inspire people forever. And I was just reminded of that. And I thought a lot about what kind of life do I want to lead? Do I want to lead an easy life? Or do I want to maybe take a riskier path, but in the end, one that might be more rewarding? It's a very pre-mortal council kind of decision, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah. So you, you read this letter. You guys decide that you're going to get married. You've been married now for... Five years? A little over five years? Almost five years. Almost, Almost five, five years. years. Okay. But shortly after shortly after you were married, I think it, I, I read in the essay that it was like three months after you were married, that there was uh, this brief reprieve from gender dysphoria, but it came back. Yeah. And that might have felt like a bit of the Achilles heel to kind of go with your thing, um, which I would imagine is, is scary for both of you now. Is that fair to, to say? Or how... How big of a of an issue was this uh, this issue when it came bubbling back up again? I mean, at the time, it was a huge, huge, huge deal. issue. Huge. Yeah, we we can't express how huge an issue it was. <laughs> it was really, really scary, and I didn't know what to do because I'd, I'd made this promise to myself. Like, I still felt like these feelings were evil. I still felt like I needed to push them away. That's what I was supposed to do. And so I'd been trying, and suddenly it came back so strongly that I couldn't push them away. I couldn't deal with it anymore, and I started to emotionally separate myself from Amy and started falling back in some of those same patterns that I'd engaged in before to try and cope. Because the one thing I didn't want to do was hurt Amy. And in my foolishness, I thought the best way not to hurt Amy was to not let her know that I was struggling really, really badly and that I could just what man up and deal with the issue on my own. It was very foolish of me. <laughs> And she'd probably shake her head, yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, you're here today. You stayed together. You made it through that. And and I guess um, there's probably a lot that can be said about the things that you guys implemented. 
But uh, I believe in the essay, you specifically mentioned some uh, a therapist that entered the picture and, and offered some words that helped you at least put better perspective on what you were feeling and maybe even disarm them a little bit. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what that therapist taught and, and, and how it impacted you? So I think for me, the hardest thing that I had to do to come to a healthier place in dealing with these feelings was come to a point where I could accept that they were a part of me. I'd been trying my whole life to push them away, to reject them. They were bad. They were wrong. So I must be wrong. And it was so essential that I could look at those feelings and say, Heavenly Father gave me these feelings for some reason. I didn't choose to have these feelings. And because I didn't choose to have these feelings and I was given them, there's no shame or guilt in having them. I think that's the biggest thing the therapist helped me do. And he's a fantastic, amazing therapist. And it was a great experience working with him because it wasn't until I had that opportunity to work through all of this with someone who could really understand and talk about it that I, I started to really, truly heal and find a much better place to be in. And so I remember one day just talking about all these feelings of guilt and how I felt evil and all these feelings of wrongness. And the therapist just looked at me and said, did you ask to have these feelings? And the answer is obvious. Of course I didn't ask to have these feelings. Who in the world would want to feel this way? Who would want to constantly hate themselves because of how they feel and who they are internally in that conflict? And then he said, well, if you didn't choose to have these feelings, is it evil that you have these feelings? Is it wrong? Is it a sin? Well, no, it's not a sin because there's no choice. And, and sin is actively going against the will of God. There can't be a sin there. I'm just feeling this way. Not only, am I, not only am I feeling this way, the will of God isn't very clear. And the church doesn't have very much policy at all on the issue. It doesn't tell us what we should or shouldn't do. I wanted, for a long time, I just wanted to be given a book that had all the rules and mm. that says, you know, for LDS members with gender dysphoria, here is exactly what you can and can't do. Here's how you should live your life. This is wrong. This isn't just... Kind of like a, your mission rules, right? Exactly. That clearly <laughs> defined place because that's what I'd always wanted. I just wanted to have a place where I felt like I should be and where I felt like God was comfortable. And through this process, I realized that agency is a real thing. We can't just ask for God to always give us all the answers. That wasn't the plan. It never was going to be the plan. And that because it wasn't defined... Because church policy, because scripture, because everything I knew was so ambiguous, the only way to live was to live by faith. And that meant praying about things, coming to decisions, and saying this is how I feel like I should live my life. And just taking a step into the darkness because there's really no answers. And I think that was the most important thing I had to learn is accept this. This is part of me. Now make an informed choice. Decide how you want to live and try and live it. And for every choice you make, there's always consequences, no matter what you choose. I mean, for individuals who are trying to live and be members of the church, there's some clearly defined consequences. If they choose to transition and have a genital reconstruction surgery, they won't be able to have temple recommends. They won't be able to exercise the priesthood in any way. And their church membership may be called into question. I mean, church policy just says something like an elective transsexual operation may be cause for church discipline, which once again isn't very clear. But there's consequences for those actions. There's consequences for choosing to do absolutely nothing. That's saying, I accept this completely and I'm just going to live with the dysphoria. And then there's consequences for every action in between. So it becomes really a matter of faith and saying, which consequences am I comfortable with? What do I want to do? And for me, it's largely a question of, well, I want to make sure I'm always in good standing with the church. That's important to me. You had a testimony you were falling yeah. back on, yeah. I, I married Amy, and I felt like I should, which means I have made promises to her that I want to keep. There are certain I mean, gender roles and things that I'm expected. And the Family Proclamation of the World talks about how fathers are expected to do certain things to protect, provide for their families. And because I've, I've promised to be a husband and a father, I'm going to try and do those things. And finally, I didn't, for me, another thing that I never wanted to do is to make people uncomfortable or to cause conflict. 
that just felt like something I shouldn't do. And so I kind of set those rules for myself and said, okay, here's what I've promised. I always want to stay in good standing with the church. I always want to be there for Amy and be what I promised to be. And I don't want to cause conflict. I don't want to hurt other people. And so what actions can I take? Yeah. So now, now that we know a little bit more of your story, of course, uh, you probably could make a movie or a very long book <laughs> on the subject. Um, it, it is an amazing story, and it, and it will probably continue to be an amazing story. Hopefully. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, but I, I would love to get some ideas, insights, suggestions, um, both for those who may be experiencing gender dysphoria themselves, who may be listening to this, as well as for their, their family, their friends or even their ecclesiastical leaders, uh, in order to help kind of understand this issue more fully, but also to help pave that path of faith, that journey of faith, uh, to use the, the, the plug there for North Star's thing, that, that includes gender dysphoria and Mormonism and how you, how you can walk that path. So starting with those who may be experiencing gender dysphoria, if you haven't already kind of gotten some inspiration from listening to Kyle's story, uh, what, what would you, Kyle, say uh, to that person that's listening that may be in that place? Okay. The first thing I would say is you are not alone. There are other people who deal with this. There are other Mormons who deal with this. It's not as uncommon an issue, perhaps, as people think. And since you're not alone, you, you can find ways to find help and support. Awesome. You should, you should never feel alone. If you have these feelings, if you have gender dysphoria and you haven't talked, it's so much easier to be open, to be authentic, to say, I have these feelings, I don't know what to do, and to try and get help. I mean, being open and sharing your story and your experience is so important. Excellent. And talking with a therapist is always helpful. i got to put in that plug there because <laughs> it helps me so, so much. And finally, I think I would say, Remember that you always have choice. We, we don't have a clearly defined policy. We don't have a set of rules. People are going to make vastly different choices. I know people who've made vastly different choices who have stayed faithful to the church. And it's really a question of considering the consequences of those choices, talking with priesthood leaders, and finding a path for you. Because everyone who has gender dysphoria has a different experience. No one feels exactly the same way. It's, there's an entire spectrum of experiences. And you just need to find what you need to do to come unto Christ, to be comfortable with yourself, and to learn how to love yourself. Excellent. I'm going to put you on the spot again, Amy, too, if I can. So from your perspective in, in I guess, helping Kyle through some of his difficult issues, what advice would you have for people that are experiencing gender dysphoria? Well, in talking to Kyle and actually talking to several other people with gender dysphoria, I I keep hearing the the theme, I felt like I was evil. I felt like I was a bad person. And I just want people with gender dysphoria to know that those feelings do not make you a bad person. Um, that really breaks my heart when I hear that. Um, and, and just know that there are those who love you, uh, your family, stay close to them. And um, Heavenly Father loves you, and Jesus Christ died to save you and to um, be there for you and, and have that atonement available for you. And I would just say lean on that and let that be your guide. Yeah. Thank you. So you, you go on to say in this essay, uh, Kyle, I don't always know how to deal with the pain of having gender dysphoria, and I constantly wonder how my identity as a transgender, fits with my identity as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, I think that members of the church are kind of in the same place, right? I mean, we don't always know how to respond. Um, we don't know what to think. And I can even think of the bishop sitting there in his chair and having someone come up to him and say, Bishop, I'm, I'm transgender or I'm having gender dysphoria. And that bishop going, hmm, what does the handbook say about this? And and as you pointed out, there's it's it's basically void of of it. The word doesn't even come up. No. Um, so, in looking at this, and and I've looked at I've tried to look at several different sources on this. Not exactly the same path that you've gone down for sure, but there are issues relating to chastity and 
there are sections of the handbook that will help bishops come to an educated and hopefully inspired decision with respect to this. However, there's probably room for input and, and ways that you would be able to help a bishop even know how to best minister to someone that comes to them with this issue. It's, it's fairly new territory in some respects for, for most bishops, I would assume. So what kind of advice would you maybe give to a bishop in, for, in this situation? First of all, I need to say that I'm sorry for any bishop who's <laughs> confronted with that. I'm it's sorry just, for any bishop. Well, yes, already, <laughs> but I just feel like that's so far outside the norm. Yeah. That, and there's no answers. So I would say the first thing to do is to be patient. It's take time to really learn the individual's story and how they're feeling and what they're doing and how they're dealing with it. And don't feel the need to immediately have any kind of answer because answers are, I mean, the church doesn't present any clear answers. And every individual is so different with their experience that answers will probably vary. Yeah. And so it's important to get to know the individual, be patient, and work to find an answer together slowly. And I think in the end, each answer has to be individual revelation by the individual, their bishops, maybe their stake president, to help them come to the best place for that individual and help that individual keep their covenants with Jesus Christ. Yeah, excellent. So uh, so mo- moving forward on the right path uh, or the choice that you've made to maintain a faithful uh, stance to, to be true to your covenants, how have you two decided that you're moving forward? How, how are you doing this together? I think the most important thing is anytime we make any kind of decision whatsoever, we do it together. And in many ways, uh, we always joke that uh, Amy's gets to be in the driver's seat. She gets to be the voice <laughs> of reason. I get to say, well, you know, how do you feel about this? And she'll say, I'm not comfortable. And it's like, okay, well, the voice of reason has spoken. We will we'll find something else. <laughs> and so it's just that idea of making decisions completely together and not moving forward with anything unless we're both completely comfortable with it. That really, I think, is the key. I mean, we we have such a great relationship, and we find joy in each other every day. We're so happy to be together. Um, But I think the secret to that has been just working together. And Kyle says, well, he says that I'm in the driver's seat, but... I really want Kyle to be happy, and I want him to be able to do um, the things that will make him happy and will relieve this dysphoria. Um, I, I kind of try to temper it with, well, you know, how is that going to make others feel? You know, how is that going to affect our relationship with our families and and things like that? Because I think some of those things can be hard in the moment to think of. Um, so I try to kind of help Kyle think of, of some of the ramifications, but we really try to work together to come to a consensus whenever a decision needs to be made. And I think um, a lot of times there's a temptation to try to find a compromise for some things, but we've really found that um, compromise isn't necessarily optimal, that uh, whenever we come to something that we disagree on, we keep working at it, working through it until um, not just a compromise, but an agreement, like a consensus that, yes, this is the best course of action. And it takes a lot of time, a lot of conversation, but I think through that process, we both come to a place where we have a great relationship with each other. We, we both maintain good relationships with our families and I think from what Kyle has told me, I mean, Kyle, you can corroborate if you like, <laughs> but Kyle has been um, recently in the best place he's really ever been in his life. Would you? Would yeah, you that's, that? that's totally true. Excellent. Well, that that's that's a very positive, happy story. Thank you for, for sharing that. And, and honestly, there's probably like a thousand other questions that I could ask, <laughs> but from what I'm getting... Even asking those questions and receiving an answer doesn't mean that someone else is going to have the same experience. And, and therefore, it's probably best to let people ask their own questions and come to their own answers with some of the other issues that kind of might, may come up around this. But uh, so, so Kyle and Amy Merkley are, are defining what it means to be on their journey of faith, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of this whole project with North Star, right? You're, this journey of faith that you are doing now together. 
Yeah. Yep. The project's really exciting because we're going to be collecting stories from dozens of individuals with vastly different experiences. Yeah. Some who have transitioned to some extent, others who've chosen not to, but all of them are faithful members of the church. And so it'll be really good to see all of their stories and their experiences and realize that this issue is, there's no black and white. It really is a personal thing and it relies on revelation from the Lord. Yeah. And as as far as nuanced issues goes, this is probably the the top of the hill right now <laughs> in the church as far as nuanced issues. But um, we'll, we'll post a link to your essay, Kyle, as, as part of the Journeys of Faith project from North Star LDS. And we'll do that at the posting of this episode at blog.fairmormon.org. But I, I encourage all to read it and, and come to feel the spirit of Kyle's testimony in that essay. And please feel free to share this message uh, with others, as well as uh, Kyle's essay is, is an effort to show forth love and support, and really to kind of do as Elder Christofferson encouraged in this last general conference, and that is to uh, to march with those side by side who may be exp- experiencing gender dysphoria, and to, to extend that hand of fellowship as a way of building a more Zion people. So thank you very much for sharing your story, both of you. Uh, I know that you both have different experiences with the same issue, but it's all come to a faithful position at this point, and I think that's admirable. So thank you both for coming in and talking about it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rise Up. This has been a production of Fair Mormon. This and other podcasts are available at fairmormon.org. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please subscribe to our show in iTunes under the name Mormon Faircast. Questions or comments can be posted at blog.fairmormon.org in conjunction with this episode. Tune in each week for another episode of Rise Up. Thank you for listening. <laughs>